Great science fiction is about more than escapist fantasies of starships and exotic aliens fighting battles in distant galaxies beyond our solar system. In the proper hand, science fiction can help us reimagine our own reality in subversive ways, provide insightful social commentary about the real world we inhabit every day. Augmented, Volume 1, is a new collection of great science fiction stories that invite us to take a closer look at ourselves and the world around us. Our contributors examine the futility of war, the dangers of xenophobia, the importance of caring for our environment, the risks associated with technology, the rise of artificial intelligence, and they remind us of all the ways we can lose our humanity if we're not careful. These 19 stories are thrilling, mind-bending, frightening, thought-provoking, and sometimes hilarious snapshots of life in at least one of our possible futures. We hope you find something to love about all of them. Augmented, Volume 1, a short story anthology of great science fiction stories available now on Amazon. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Welcome back to Snarky Faith. I'm Stuart Deloney, your guide through the wilderness of spiritually disenfranchised radio. Had enough of the insanity in Christianity? Well, you've come to the right place. We're here on a quest for a sane, grounded faith that aims to make the world better in real, tangible ways. We're not afraid to call out the religious BS or to look for better pathways forward. If your conversations about faith require a heavy dose of sarcasm and even a bit of this, then welcome home. You can find this and all past episodes at snarkyfaith.com or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We're here. We're there. We're practically everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. Previously on Snarky Faith. Um, uh, and even if you take all the money, uh, money... Money is the root of all evil. All, all that I care about is that I can look in the mirror and I can say I, I, I did what my conscience told me to do, that my father would be proud of me. And We're that proud of you, Rudy! And please, don't interrupt me. My father would be proud of me and Jesus Christ would be proud of me. Because that's who I prayed to before I made these decisions, including on September 11. I said, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, indeed. I mean, come on. Poor Rudy. Poor Rudy. Think about this. Wasn't it just like just a few years back when everybody was hoisting him on their shoulders as Rudy made the tackle at the end of the Notre Dame game. I mean, how far this guy has fallen, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. <laughs> but with Rudy, he's a great place for us to start with talking today because we're going to be delving into talking about the fun holiday topic that everybody wants to be engaging in grief. Yes, grief and the holidays, because it's that time of the year when the world seems split between Instagram-worthy moments of joy and the not-so-sparkly reality of life. 
For some, it's a season of glitter and glee. For others, it's more like sifting through the emotional equivalent of those dreaded bargain bins on Boxing Day. Huh? Huh? Little Canadian nod to my listeners out there? Up there? A. But here's the twist. While we're decking the halls and doing our best to dodge those cringeworthy family gatherings, there's a quieter narrative playing in the background for many. It's the first Christmas without a loved one. The ache of an empty chair at a dinner table or the silent toast to memories of the past. Grief, my friends, doesn't take a holiday. Even if the radio insists on playing jingle bells for a millionth time. And that's why, that's why my conversation today with Dr. Jonathan Foster, the author of Indigo, The Color of Grief, is going to be impactful because Dr. Foster is here to help us navigate through this sleigh ride of sorrow with the grace and wisdom of a man who's turned his own loss into a journey of understanding and empathy. We'll be delving deep into his book, but not before we take our usual detour through the land of Christian crazy, where the only thing heavier than the fruitcake is the irony. So we'll have some laughs before we get real. But I do just want to reach out to those of you that are experiencing grief, that are experiencing loss this season, or even <laughs> this year. I feel you. And I'm going to be unpacking some of mine, some of the weirdness of life that's happened to me over the next couple of episodes as we move forward. But enough of that heaviness. Come on. Come on. We got we to gotta move past, chin up. And move on our way to the choicest cuts of Christian nuts. That's right. The Christian crazy of the week. Here we go. If loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. Now, typically on the Christian crazy, we like to talk about those nutter butters of the faith, those prophets, pastors, and grifters that are just full of cringe. And don't worry, we've got some of those. But before that, this is a bit of a different twist in the Christian crazy. We mentioned him in the last episode, Mike Johnson. Talked about Mike Johnson's covenant eyes and his weird porn pact with his son. Well, it's even come out lately that he kind of has a weird purity pact with his daughter. Come out in the news that I think it was a couple of years back, he and his daughter went to a purity ceremony where she signed a contract to her dad saying she wasn't going to get any before marriage. Because, you know, that's normal. But you know what's also not normal in real life, but very, very normal in Christian life, is putting yourself, putting yourself in the mold of a biblical hero and character. It, it, it's one of the most beautiful acts of hubris that we can see when we look at the Bible and going, oh, there was such a time as this, and that was their me. Now, speaking of Mike Johnson, I want you to see here in his speech, if you can spot this hubris, right? that whole kind of main character identity scenario that we do within Christianity, that I'm it. Well, he's certainly something.
Oh, step forward, saith the Lord. Yes, he were Moses all along. Doesn't that kind of feel like, like that's some sort of award show thing? Like, oh, me? I'm the Moses? I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I would be chosen. But okay, I'll take it. I'm the new Moses. But see, here's my issue with the whole thing. Like, you can take the Moses mantle, if you will, but let's go ahead and say contextually, if you're going to do this, which I don't recommend doing, but, you know, Mike's already gone ahead and done this. If you're going to go ahead and start declaring yourself the new Moses, you've got to take all of Scripture with you. And just, you know, just for fun, let's go ahead. Let's hop to Exodus 4, Exodus 4, 21, because, you know, I think you need the whole story, Mike, because I think this needs to come next in your journey as Moses. So Exodus 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, and so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Here's the twist. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord left him alone. Anyone, anyone in Congress have any flint knives? Because again, you never know. God's going to be mad. You got to keep that trusty foreskin pocket knife ready at all times, Mike. All times, Mike. But speaking of people that have got a lot of gall and a lot of hubris that fit well into the Christian crazy, let's go. Today, you guys have a double dose of Kenneth Copeland being an asshole. And a greasy grifter. And here's, here's the thing that you must always remember. When you don't tithe, you've got a ticking time bomb in your pocket. And it'll explode right when you needed it not to. <coughs> Why would anyone not want to tithe? Have you figured out by now God doesn't need your money? He's doing very well. But the reason he insists on it is so that he has the opportunity to enter into our affairs and then turn around and bless us and spend it all back on us. Oh, is that how it goes? Is that how it goes? Because kind of translations, what's happening here is God doesn't need your money, but I do. And then, you know, but if you do give to God, which is my ministry, you're going to get back so much more, so much more, so much more. I mean, doesn't this kind of sound like a very like sleazy financial advisor? <laughs> Give me your money and I'm going to double it. Yeah, yeah, he's greasy. He's greasy. But let's just do a thought experiment really quickly. Um, let's just assume he absolutely means what he says right? That, oh, this is why we give to God. God doesn't need the money. Okay. Okay. Well, let's kind of see good old Ken 
Now here, talk again about money. And say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> no, we're part of the name it, claim it, reap it. Yes. That's who we are. Well, and George, hey, we named it, claimed it, blabbed it, grabbed it, and we have it. We do have it. <laughs> we're the one with the airplane. Yeah. Suh. Yeah. Yeah. Airplane, zuh. Zuh. Oh, I get it. I get it. To see what that cocky bastard is saying. Airplane, zuh, zuh, plural, plural. Yeah. This whole thing is just a scam. But you know what's not a scam? The fact that the earth is flat. I mean, round. I mean, flat. I mean, round. Oh, I think we mentioned this in the last episode that Greg Locke, uh, yeah, that Greg Locke, the crazy Tennessee preacher man. Yeah, he was having a debate with another pastor in the area about whether the earth was flat versus the earth being round, which is an actual debate that did honestly happen. But as you would expect, your Christian cringe of the week is going to be how that debate ended. Spoiler alert, it didn't end well. Here's your Christian cringe of the week. Christian cringe. No, God, please, no, no. no, no this you, is nonsense. You came up with your scriptures and gave your interpretation of them. I gave mine. I gave you the Bible interpretation of I gave you the Bible. Them. I gave more Bible than you did for a fact right there. All right. Oh, really? That's a fact. Well, I'll tell you what. How about, how about in your rebuttal... I'll keep my mouth shut, and you tell me how wrong I was about your misapplication of the ring stamping no, 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 uh, yeah, in Job yeah. chapter 38. First of all... Hello? Is it sunrise or not? Not. Not at all. I don't agree with Turn you. Turn his mic off. Get out. Wow. You're a Bible denier. You're a Bible denier. You're a Bible denier. That is ridiculous. Bible denier. Just get out. Get the band up here. Woo! Let's worship the Lord. I ain't putting up with this nonsense no more. I gave you our platform. And y'all want to get up here with a bunch of nonsense. Come up here, band. Let's worship the Lord. We're going to... Oh, yes. The classic pastor get out of a debate. You're not winning, even though you should be winning, because in actuality, Greg Locke was arguing for the side of a round earth. Yes, yes, yes. But it's that classic classic exit move of hey y'all let's just get the band up here it's time to worship because that's what worship is really about it's just meant to be a transition to get you away from an argument that you're already losing mm, mm. it's a good thing we learned that learn something new every day well it's that time we're going to step into my chat with Dr. Jonathan Foster. The cool thing that happened was that when we originally recorded the chat, it was right around the time he was launching an Indiegogo campaign for his book. The timing didn't work out to get the interview on the pod in time, so I held it. And guess what? He got funded, and now it's on Amazon. So, without any further ado... Let's go ahead and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jonathan. Well, today we are going to go in a little bit of a different direction than we have uh, in the most recent conversations that we've had with authors. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Jonathan Foster. He is a former church planter, theologian, 
nonprofit co-founder, musician. Jonathan also has a doctorate in mimetic theory and open and relational theology. He's also an author who has experienced loss. So we're going to be talking about grief and loss today. Jonathan uh, is a writer, podcaster, and artist, and his new book, Indigo, The Color of Grief, is what we're going to be talking about. So welcome, Jonathan. Welcome today. <laughs> thanks, man. It's glad to, uh, I'm glad to be here, and thanks so much for having me back on. I mean, that takes a lot of courage to do it once, but then twice. I mean, good for you. So, well, thank you. I, I've just been told I don't learn from my mistakes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be, that could be too. <laughs> so, oftentimes when we're talking about books, we are talking about something that is about to just come out, but this is a little bit of a different project. You are going to be launching an Indiegogo uh, fundraiser, crowdfunder. Yep. So, tell me more about that. Speak more into yeah. that process. Well, so this book, um, I, I hadn't pitched any agents and publishers for a couple of books, but I knew this one was not that my other stuff is not special. I hope it is. But this one is, is I think, extra special. And so I spent quite a bit of time a few months ago pitching the crap out of this to agents and publishers and trying to just get it into a bit bigger setting. It didn't quite work for a lot of different reasons, but all the while I've been thinking, you know what would really work nicely with this is mm. to do some kind of crowdfunder because um, one thing I just never have liked about traditional publishing launches is you never get to connect with your readers. I mean, mm. Amazon and Apple, they all know who you know has purchased this, but but the author doesn't. And so, and I know you know that as a creative content guy, it's like it like means a lot to be able to connect individually with people. Plus, given that this book is about grief and the intensity of it, I thought, you know what, the crowdfunding thing is probably probably a nice thing to do anyhow. So, yeah, I'm gonna do that for a three week campaign. We're gonna try to raise, I don't know, maybe four or five grand, and to print all these books and a few other perks that we're doing, and then maybe by the end of the year or the first of the year. If uh, it doesn't get picked up in certain places, we'll launch it uh, like normal on all the Amazons and Barnes and Nobles and all those kinds of places. Now, have you ever done anything like this before or is this first time out? I did one project years ago on, on the Indiegogo site, which is for those who may not know. A lot of people have heard of Kickstarter. So it's Indiegogo is very similar to Kickstarter. And I also did something on Kickstarter, a church related thing years ago, too. So I've had really good success with it in the past, and um, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, the only thing to stress about is, are you going to fund the thing? And, um, you know, I've, I've taken a few measures. I've called a few friends, and I've said, hey, can you just be ready on Tuesday morning, October 17th to, you know, just maybe give up front. Don't, like, don't play games with me. Just make it happen. So I think, you know, I've got a little bit of it covered, and... And then um, we'll get the rest of it covered. But yeah, I've I've only had a couple experiences, and they've been really positive. Mm -hmm. Well, what you you may know. Sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say, yeah. um, you know, in the author world right now, Kickstarter, Indiegogo stuff is going crazy. You may have heard of Brandon Sanderson. He's a sci-fi dude. He just did a Kickstarter where he raised. Actually, I can't even remember what the total was. It was something like twenty-seven million dollars, or something oh, wow. insane like that. So I figure if we could get about half of that for Indigo, the color of yes, blue, I, yes. I think we'd be doing fine. Because it'll be easier for what private jets will make all of the whole process for you easier. And it'll be, even be easier to write books on in the future, right? 
Exactly. Okay. Everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to kind of break down our conversation into into kind of two different halves. Um, one of them being about just the book and the process um, into what you're doing. And then lastly, we'll just talk more specifically about your experiences with grief, which I know yeah. a lot of your experiences with grief will also be <laughs> a part of everything that we're talking about. Sure. But for me, just to go ahead and tell you and my listeners here, this book it, it felt like a very like experiential read as I was mm. going through it, kind of like you were in someone's mind um, as they were trying to process through loss. Um, as someone who's been through loss in my life as well, I mean, it's, it's powerful and it's, it's insightful. And it just, I feel like it speaks a lot to the human experience, regardless of faith tradition. Um, and the thrust of your book is about the tragic death of your daughter. Um, and and I think this is something because I think that all of us who are in life um, exper will experience grief if we haven't, but most of us already have in, in one case or another. But um, it, is a, it is a beautiful process. <laughs> and I, it felt like that reading felt like a process uh, going mm. through that in your book. Now, what I want to do um, talking about this, what, what was your idea when you decided to start to write a book like this? What, 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 were you, what was your hope? What was your aim? What were you going for? You know, honestly, for something like this specifically, and this is true with most of my writing, but definitely with this, the, the goal was just to try to process this myself, to give, mm -hmm. me, give myself a space to work through some of these things. And for, for whatever reason, writing has turned into a thing for me over the last five, six years that has helped me it almost, almost feels like praying, almost feels like meditating. There's something about moving words around on a screen and, um, you know, switching grammar out and, and just different synonyms and those kinds of things. There's something about that whole process that's helpful for me. So at one level, um, it's really about trying, it's really all about me, Stuart. That's that's what I'm trying to say. It's, uh, it's kind of a selfish thing. Um, on another level, what I what I really hoped and what seems to be happening in terms of at least the pre-reading stuff and the feedback I've been getting is is that it'll give people it'll give others space to process um, their loss as well. And even the way I wrote it, uh, as you know, I wrote it in lowercase. I extracted as many of the words out as I could. So it's slightly poetic. So there's a lot of white space, um, as it were, on the page. And I hope that those things, and just the pacing of it, the cadence of it, and I'm hoping that those things will help people treat their own loss with gentleness and patience mm -hmm. and grace, which is what I've been trying to do with me. And because I'm, I'm by nature not a very patient, gentle, gracious person, but I've had to learn, um, and I shouldn't say I've just had to. I mean, I've been invited to learn, and and I'm I've been thankful to learn. That I, that I need to treat myself, you know, with a little bit more grace. And so that's what I'm kind of doing here with the loss. And I, I hope other people will be able to pick up on that. And, and I love how you're talking about that, because I think anytime that we are dealing with tragedy and grief, that, that word process is, is right there front and center. And I, I got this feeling um, that one, there was probably the processing you had done in real time, in the flesh, moment to moment, week after week, and then the secondary processing of kind of taking all of that and then dumping it onto page. And 
did, did that whole journey, was it, was it, was it stretching? Was it affirming? <laughs> what was it like? Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. There was a real time, like you don't have a choice. You have mm-hmm. to deal with it in that moment in particular. And what came to mind when you said that was, you know, I'm a father, obviously I had, uh, we had two other boys at home when she died. And, and of course my partner. And so, you know, I felt a certain sense of responsibility to process it as much as I could. Plus mm-hmm. at the time I was a pastor. So I was trying to, I was trying to create meaning for our young, you know, small church who obviously all knew her really well. And then, yeah, the other part was now um, eight, eight and a half years removed, still living in the wake of the event. Cause um, we never really mm-hmm. uh, entirely get through these things. Uh, yeah. There's been a whole other series of like, theological, psychological, ecclesiological, oh, wait, what the expletive is going <laughs> on here? And what what do I think about God? And what do I think about myself and humanity? And what does this mean? So, right, there, there's it was go- multiple levels of stuff were happening. Um, and uh, you never really get to the bottom of these things, you know, but I think it's honorable I think it's a really honorable human thing to enter into it and, and to try to wrestle with it. Oh, it is. Um, and and it was, you, you've done this in a very, I keep coming back to the same word. It just feels very intimate. Um, mm. And and I don't know if that was necessarily your hope or your aim, but but the rawness that it had there, like there was times where I'm like, I could remember moments where, where I was going through situations and it would just, your writings would just bring me right back there. And mm. not, not, not in a way that was like soul crushing, but in a way of just being able to be like, oh, like the fact that you have been through this and you have felt this way and I have done that. It, it's, it's interesting how oftentimes we try to run away from pain and grief, mm-hmm. but it's something that, that can be so, in a weird way, almost healing and affirming when we encounter other people's pain and grief. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you've just said a couple of different things there. Um, I'll pick up on the last part first. I think especially for us masculine types, we have not been taught very well by the church um, and certainly not by the culture. Although, honestly, I think sometimes the culture at large is better than church culture Mm. uh, in many respects. But we've just not been conditioned to hold our antagonism and and our turbulence very well we've we've been conditioned basically to think and it's not the culture's entirely the culture's fault i think i bring some of my own competitiveness and all of that stuff into it as well but we've been conditioned to think that you know we have to win we have to dominate this thing that we can't be vulnerable that we can't risk etc etc well when something like this happens um I mean, dude, what else is it? It's mm-hmm. it's like completely vulnerable. There's just no hiding from that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's been a big part of my journey is trying to hold the tension of that, and still, like like it messed my identity up so much. Um, but just find a new identity and all that's been really really uh, interesting. And yeah, the intimate part. I really thank you for saying that. Um, I, I hope that that's true. I hope people can. As they're reading it, they'll they'll feel like this connects with you know what they've been going through. So that's that's pretty cool. Can can you speak more into this? Because this is something that I feel like uh, you you mentioned this earlier, and I'll probably quote it wrong. But you were talking about how this uh, 
going through the situation brought everything that you knew theologically, psychologically, all, all these things kind of just dumping into, into that. Um, and then you mentioned earlier uh, uh, about kind of coming out of this with a bit of a new identity. Can you kind of speak to that process? Because it is, it's, you, there's all these threads and ideas that we have, uh, especially with theology, but theology gets real when we have to live it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably only actually real when we live it. Mm -hmm. So completely, I think all of us are, um, you know, I often say we're meaning making creatures. It's really what we do. Our prefrontal cortex is constantly, you know, telling us stories and restoring our lives and trying to, you know, make meaning and figure out what's going on. And as we grow up, as we mature, uh, we, that's what we do. You know, we figure out what we can trust and what stories we believe in and, and um, but then these little, you know, in in writing, we call them inciting incidents, mm -hmm. these incidents that incite trouble. And so these little inciting incidents, sometimes that aren't so little, like rocks in a pond, um, disturb our meaning making stuff and our identity. So for me, yeah, my identity, I mean, I grew up in a pretty basic middle of the road, Bible believing quasi fundamental church. My dad was a pastor. Both my granddads were pastors. Um, you know, I, I didn't have much of a choice. I, I shouldn't say that I'm only half kidding. Like the mimetic, the mimetic energy was so strong in our family. Of course I was going to grow up and become a pastor. And, um, you know, that was my entire identity. And so you would have thought I would have, I would have liked to have said that by the age of 44, when my daughter died, that I had formulated all my thoughts about theology. Well, actually, mm -hmm. in some ways, I, I guess I had, but, um, but it was such a big change for us that it required me to unwind a lot of things. And I've, it's really been cool. I, you know, again, the word honorable, I think is, is accurate. It's really been an honorable thing to do that, but it's been, it's been very hard because it's not just like, oh, now I think this of God. It's like, no, man, my neurological system grew up around this thing. And I have to, I think literally, I'm not, obviously I'm not a neurologist, but I, I think that, you know, certain synapses have formed around things. And so to change your mind means that you have to you have to like literally ignore some of these synapses or create new ones to create new ideas. So yeah, that whole thing about identity and new identity, it's very real. And um, it's, it's very much something I wrestle with all the time. Well, one thing too, I know that is part of just the whole human condition and it's something that you've mentioned earlier in your own life about not, we're not very patient with ourselves. Um, and we don't like things that are painful, things that expose us. Um, so as you've kind of walked through this, can you speak somewhat um, from your experiences too? What is, what is the posture? What, is, what does mourning well <laughs> and handling grief look like from what you've been through? Yeah, good question. You know, um, First of all, just a reminder for folks listening that, uh, and you already kind of said it, and I really appreciated what you said in terms of, like we we have actually all experienced loss, mm -hmm. um, whether it's whether it's death or divorce or 
you know, some kind of economic financial loss or death of a dream or loss of time. Um, you know, time going by is that irreparable thing that we cannot ever stop. Uh, so we've all experienced that. And then also some of us have experienced things that we've suppressed. We don't even realize mm. what we've lost. Maybe until we read something like Indigo or see a film or listen to a song. Um, so I think that's really important to remember that all of us are experiencing that. And then, so what does it mean to, geez, um, I, I do think just the patience part, the self-respect part, the entering into the tension part, uh, which is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, to, to not be too quick to rush to get this figured out, to not assign meaning too quick. A lot of it, a lot of these have to do with just going slower, which probably mm -hmm. is could just be me because um, I tend to be a little bit. I just I usually have too much going on, and I'm I'm definitely not a patient person. Mm. Um, and and was and still am a little bit, but definitely was more competitive and you know wanted to win. So, I think just yeah, I'm repeating myself. I think just trying to hold it. I just try to hold it well, mm. you know some of these things can't really ever be fixed. They can only really be carried. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's what we're trying to do. I love that. That's good. Um, one of the things I, 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 I truly like, I laughed, even though this, this is not a laughing part of your book, but you mentioned this. You, uh, there was a chapter where it's essentially bad answers so, I, to deep problems that you've probably, you've heard from clergy and other people like that. And I wasn't laughing out of your loss. I was laughing because I, it reminded me exactly like a situation where uh, when I was even younger, I remember a pastor giving me the most trite, idiotic response <laughs> to the loss of a family member. And even like, I'm even at 13 going, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> and you can't, you know, you can't say anything back to him. So you smile and you nod and you just wait for right. him to stop talking. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I want, I want, yeah. Can you speak more into the, these experiences of, the thoughtless and trite things that we often do because we're uncomfortable and don't know what to say and how that can be a real pain of the ass to people that are in those hurting places. Yeah. I, on more than one occasion, multiple occasions have recognized that people really couldn't enter into the intensity of my problem, like with a lot of vulnerability and honesty, because it reminded them too much of their, the intensity of their problem. Mm -hmm. And so I started recognizing that pretty quick. And of course, being a pastor and working with people, you see that all the time. Anyhow, um, it's it's tough for humans, again, conditioned by our American West uh, colonial, you know, power dominated capital O omnipotent theological dominated mm -hmm. to to live in those spaces very long. So, yeah, people say dumb things. Um and I try to point out in the book, and I've, and I've tried to say this in other places too, I, like that I don't really want to be disrespectful to the people because mm -hmm. um, I've said dumb things in an attempt to kind of domesticate the wildness of life myself. Although I'm, I'm completely fine with uh, disrespecting the religious theological systems that have put us in such absurd situations to only be able to respond by saying, well, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, in the case of like when my one of my best friends in college died and someone said, well, I guess, you know, God needed him. 
up there in heaven more than he needed him down here on earth or you know it's just we all we all probably experience those and they're just silly things um but I, but i also know individual people are for the most part well-intentioned and they're just they're just trying to say something it's part of the reason why in the in indigo i you know i spend a little bit trying to help people just slow down and not and and remember they don't have to fix it and they don't have to say the right thing and they don't have to defend god and there's you know this, this loss is absurd so probably the best thing to do is just to uh, be in solidarity with people mm-hmm. and I've, I've learned that too sometimes just being there um yep is, is the best thing and yep seems like a jesus move also mm-hmm. and i often think of that i i um you know my theology now is wrapped up in the person is wrapped up in the idea of someone like Jesus who was not on the cross to again fix everything but hands stretched out on the cross holding everything together mm-hmm. and that seems like a good that seems like a really good friend and um so i hope the encouragement is for people you know just to learn that and to slow down and and try to be a good friend to others Another thing I wanted, I was going to have you unpack some, and I thought you captured very well the beauty of simple, ordinary moments, Mm. um, especially in regards to memory and and remembering those that we love, that that have been a part of our lives. Um, Speak to that, because it, it, again, I feel like it's somewhat in the slowing down (laughs) of things and other that, but the importance of of those memories yeah really what else do we have we have these simple Mm -hmm. little things that we all go through every day and you know sometimes we're tempted to think there are these big moments but the big moments are just a a series of smaller moments that lead up to it and i feel like often i know i'm guilty of this and i know certainly people i've interacted with over the years have talked a lot about this idea of the kind of person that they want to be and the kind of life that they want to have. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, at some point, I think it's, I think we all serve each other. Well, when we recognize whatever we're doing every day is already the life that we have, you're already doing your life. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like it's off out there somewhere. I mean, obviously there are goals and there's, there's a trajectory and there's stuff that we work for, but how you spend your days is how you spend your life. And um, I wasn't, it's weird, man. I don't know why um, I didn't do that very well, like with church stuff or when I was younger or whatever, but I'm really grateful. I, I think that if it's okay to say it this way, that I kind of, I did that pretty well as a dad. And I'm really grateful for that. I really, really loved being a dad. And I loved all the different phases. It always cracked me up. Like when the kid, we had three kids, they're all three totally different which is amazing in and of itself. And, you know, you, you'd you figure out one phase and by the time you'd figure it out, my wife and I would just be amazed. Oh, they're on to the next phase and we got to figure out. And I loved every single stage. Um, so I don't remember now what the question was that you asked. I think, oh, the, just the little moments. I think yeah. just enjoying, enjoying that. For some reason, I didn't do it well in other areas of my life, but I, I did it well with my kids and... Um, that's probably why it's so easy to write about it, and it comes through in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I will tell you, it was, it was, yeah, it, I, I loved it. I loved being able just to see just the human moments of this, mm. um, just the the ordinary, the or, the ordinary holiness of the moments, 
that, yeah. that we live and that we walk past and that we can get so caught up in things that we yeah. intend to forget those. Um, yeah. Yeah. And as my theology sh has shifted, that's one place that it's definitely changed a lot is this idea of, you know, I no longer think of this uh, God that's out there external, you know, that every once in a while does an intervention and comes in, mm -hmm. but who actually is incarnated in us and in all matter in all creatures. Um, so that, that actually then makes it makes sense than what you're talking about the holy everyday ordinary stuff yeah 24 7 that's actually what is going on mm. and so i think you're totally right and it, it i just i need to keep continue to do better at that just every day just enjoy the, the little stuff mm. um it's a reminder to all of us as well <laughs> uh, yeah. about about how we engage the world around us and how we walk forward well what i wanted to do too uh since you agreed to this earlier um, I wanted to give the audience a taste of of some of this book, a taste of sure. Ego. Um, so uh, please, if you would, um, we were going to yeah. read this section aptly entitled for our conversation too, um, entitled Grieving. Yeah, thanks for asking. I shall. Are you ready for me? Yes, sir. I think, it's, I think it's a couple pages. It's not real long, but it goes something like this. Grieving is a slow arrow a renegotiation with time to live best one can without thinking too far ahead. The next milestones like millstones around the neck of our future, birthdays, holidays, anniversaries. It's a commitment to each day full of grace by the hour. Grieving is redirection of power to give one's impatience a hug, to be powerful in powerless waiting. Grieving is redefinition of attachment to let go of letting go, to see oneself attached to the absence that does not let go. Remember random hug our girl gave a few months before death. She was a busy nursing student, papers to write, people to talk to, places to go. But as she clipped through the kitchen one day, she took a detour, found me, and gave a random hug. I wrapped arms around her and felt the puffiness of her winter coat deflate and rhythm to her exhale. She sank into the embrace, rested for a moment, said, you smell like daddy. Didn't ask her what that meant, but I imagine part fragrance, part strength, part home. And now I'm permanently attached to the existence of non-existent random kitchen hugs. I hate it and I accept it. There's a certain kind of sweetness here. I imagine part fragrance, part strength, part home, the longing of, grieving, is the longing for home. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, yeah, I'm, exci you. I'm excited to see what, what is next. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for reading it and for your compliments and comments and for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Anytime. Excellent. Well, that's all we've got on the show today. Much thanks to Dr. Jonathan Foster. You should check out his book, Indigo, The Color of Grief. It's on Amazon. And before I send you off, just a reminder to share the show, subscribe, and give Snarky Faith a review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps to get the word out to new listeners. And thank you. Thank you for being a part of this show week after week, month after month, year after year. I appreciate all of you and hope that you can have the best season, <laughs> the best season of holidays, whether you celebrate these holidays or not, but have the best season have the best end of the year as possible. 
And as I release you out into this wild, wide world, I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. I'm out of here. Peace be with you. If you like your theology hot, caffeinated, and stimulating, pour yourself a second cup of your favorite beverage and sit down with me, Keith Giles, as we explore topics like hell, the second coming, biblical inerrancy, women in the Bible, deconstruction, penal substitution, and so much more in the brand new book, Second Cup with Keith. Now, it's inspired by my podcast of the same name, Second Cup with Keith, but in the book, we'll go even deeper into these topics and prepare to be inspired, surprised, and challenged on nearly every page as we tip every sacred cow and leave no theological stones unturned. Second Cup with Keith, Volume 1, the brand new book from Choir Publishing, and Keith Giles, available now on Amazon.